Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, AZ18 or 88 right across Australia. Right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio in the morning, you are with Lyle and... Angela. Angela. <laughs> You're still here this morning. That's fantastic. And how are you this morning? I am very good. I woke yeah. up at 5.04 this morning. What time does your alarm clock go off? Well, this morning it was 5.04. <laughs> okay. I changed it. Normally I set it for 5.17. Um, okay. but, but Liam asked me why I chose 517. I was like, well, I just don't like the round numbers in the morning. I like random numbers. And he's like, oh, I thought it stood for a bioverse. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So I looked up like one of my favorite bioverses that I claim to wake up in the morning um, about how God uh, will wake you up. It's in something, chapter five, verse four. I can't think of the book right now. But anyway, so I was like, let me try it. So I tried 504 and it worked. And I felt even more awake than 5.17. So we're going to go with 5.04 so, so, now. So, so when you... Okay, okay let's, let's just go with um, this 5.04 for the moment. <laughs> when you woke up at 5.04, was it because your alarm clock went off or you just woke up at 5.04? You know, before the radio station, God has just been waking me up. It's a prayer that I prayed since I came to Australia. But the radio station, I have to, I have to hear it the has, alarm this it time. Has disciplined you. I feel like I'm kind of awakeish before it goes off, you know. But definitely, I probably would not be getting up without that beautiful little sound in the morning. <laughs> okay, so the big question is: the big question is, what is radio going to be like tomorrow? I understand you've got a bit of a bit of a thing happening tonight. Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> so, uh, but see, late night coming up, maybe. <laughs> you know, the night before though, I did not get enough sleep, and last night I made sure to get to bed at a great time of nine eight, nine p.m. and I woke up as right as rain, so we'll just there you go. be fine. <laughs> no worries at all, piece of cake. And then, of course, you'll be able to recover over the weekend, and you'll be good to go. You know, again, come Monday. Yeah, we'll see if, if, if you're still around on Monday. <laughs> we will see where that cloud moves to. Uh, as Angela follows it through her life. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. What's happening in the world of uh, positively different news? All right. Well, I have a couple really cute little stories that I found really motivating this morning. And the first one is about an 86-year-old woman who decided to do something different with her stimulus check. So basically, she lives in America in Rhode Island, and she noticed that people seem to be walking by her house, and they look so sad on the sidewalks. And she grew up during World War, or yeah, was alive during World War II, and she remembers the trauma of that. But she says, it just seems different. This world even seems harsher. And she says, what can I do to be make it a positive? And so what she has done is she's used her stimulus check to buy lots of stuffed animals and make her front yard look like a zoo. Oh, nice. But wait, wait a minute, what happens when it rains? I was wondering the same thing because she actually is handicapped and a, a kind neighbor helped her set it up. So I don't know. It doesn't say on the article if she brings them in every night. Um, maybe she does, but she has little stuffed animals. She has a tiny little yard and she says that people from all over have come and they literally drive and they come and hang out in front of her fence and she sees kids smiling and she just loves it. <laughs> That's amazing. That's awesome. Did you do the uh, stuffed animal in the window during the uh, COVID lockdown? No, nah, because your house was not where people walk past. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We had we had the stuffed elephant in our window. I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, so during the COVID lockdown, there was a thing happening where um, 
you know, a lot of a lot of kids were obviously at home from school. They weren't at school, and they to get some exercise. That often, you know, parents taken for a walk and so forth, and so everybody would uh, was putting stuffed animals in windows so that the kids could sort of like, oh, there's one, and oh, there's another one, as they did their walk and exercise oh, and stuff like that. That's very sweet. Yeah, there was quite like a few. That. There were quite a few around our local suburbs. So it was, that's very it was nice. Cool. All right, another good feel good story is about a pastor um, in Florida who decided to celebrate his birthday different. Um, he was turning 73 and he remembers when he was 17, he used to drive an ice cream truck. Cool. And so for this birthday, he drove around a very poor area in Florida, um, and he passed out free ice cream out of his ice cream truck. So was this the same ice cream truck that he drove? Because if it was, it's going to be a very cool ice cream truck and I would like to see a photo. No, he had a driver and it was like his ice cream truck. He just paid for all the ice cream and he just passed out ice cream all day long. And some of the kids were saying that they hadn't seen an ice cream truck in that area and the parents for a year and a half. So it was like the first time they had ice cream in a while. Have you had an ice cream truck drive past your place since you've been in Australia? (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't think I've ever really ever heard one because I was raised in the country. So ice cream trucks just belong in movies for me. I'm not not really sure, to be honest. Uh, I didn't have that experience, but I guess that's okay. There's worse things in life than not having ice cream trucks. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I'm trying trying to remember whether I've ever seen an ice cream truck drive past. I've seen plenty of ice cream cream trucks around, but I've never lived in in town before either, so... Um, yeah, couldn't really comment on that. No. Very interesting. All right, what else is happening? All right, so this is a study that's recently been done in Canada um, with everything going on with COVID-19. They've done a study on fathers, and they have found that fathers during this time have felt closer to their kids during the coronavirus lockdown measures. That's nice. That's good. And this is one of the positives that, you know, we've got to recognize that there has been a whole bunch of positives that have come out of, uh, out of, out of COVID-19. Yeah, so they surveyed a 1,000 fathers to find out. And what they found out that um, 40% of the respondents felt COVID-19 has had a positive impact on their role as a father. And 52% are more aware of their importance as a father. And 60% felt closer to their children. And 49% have decided to be more engaged as a father in the future. That's awesome. That's really, really good. Yeah, I think that's so awesome. So it's, basically, it's just a little bit sad that we had to have a COVID crisis to make it happen. You know, unfortunately, it's, sometimes it's tragedy to wake us up, and sadly, sometimes it's only a tragedy that wakes us up to remind us what's really important. And so often we're just busy surviving, right? We we think that we live or work to live, but really we live to work. And so I think this has opened up the parents' um, eyes to the fact that whoa time is where it's at relationship with my children and my family is where it's at and as they've been forced to stop they've come to the reality that wait a second i spend very little time with my family absolutely and this is um you know research has shown that particularly fathers struggle to spend quality time with their children i think uh, research some time ago that used recording devices revealed that fathers spent on average 87 seconds per day in meaningful conversation with their children 87 seconds 87 seconds in meaningful conversation oh wow yeah so this is this has been a great a great wake-up call i think for a lot of people as far as you know what they really can contribute you know 
in, in their family and to children and so forth. And, you know, if they've learned some important lessons, may it continue. Definitely. You know, I just want to encourage any dads out there because when I was a seventh grader, my dad started making a point of sitting on my bed at nighttime um, to let me talk about my day. And so you hear of the seventh grader, which is like age 13, and I'm telling my father about my boy problems because he's just sitting on my bed. And so that started a, a relationship all the way till now where I'm very comfortable talking to my father about the guys that I like or the struggles that I am in because at a very vulnerable age where I needed someone to talk to, he made that time. And so if you can make time to sit with your children and let them talk, poof, especially at night, they will tell you stories. <laughs> That's powerful testimony right there. Incredibly powerful testimony. Yeah, definitely makes a big difference. My father was busy at work all day long, and then sometimes he'd come home on the farm and work as well, obviously. And so um, at nighttime, though, it was his job to put us to bed because we're mainly with our moms all day. So my dad would be the one to tuck us in. And when we were little, we'd ride on his back, you know. But as we got older, he'd just make that time to sit on our beds. And I remember at night after he was done tucking us in, I look out the window and I see the tractor driving and the lights on all night long if he mowed the hay or something. But I just always felt like I was a priority. Yeah, fantastic testimony right there. And thank you so much for sharing that. This is so important and a big challenge for everybody out there who is a dad. You can play such an important role in your children's life and in their spirituality. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Well, joining us on the phone this morning is Baron Neustraten, who is our expert on everything to do with uh, the book of Genesis. And we've been working our way through the whole creation story, the flood story. But really, the story doesn't end right there because it continues on to talk about the uh, the Tower of Babel. And I guess, Baron, that's the point in which we are up to now. One of the major questions that I often have when I you know talk about the you know, the, the story of creation from people who come from an evolutionary background is the origin of the races. Where did, you know, if we didn't evolve, then where did all the different races come from? Does this story have any bearing on that, Baron? Oh, very much so. Uh, very much so, Lyle, and uh, good to be with you again as well. Look, um, there are three main stories in the, in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, of course, the first being the creation. The second, the account of the flood, which uh, has devoted to itself more space than actual creation itself. And then there is the relatively short but very pointed story of the Tower of Babel. Um, clearly, uh, the three are related. And uh, if one of them has happened, then the other two has happened as well. It has to be true. And uh, that is, uh, that is, of course, very important. The main explanation is to do with genetics. So when you study the genealogies in the Bible, which many people step over because it, it can be a bit boring, the reality is, the reality is that a genetic makeup per family accentuates uh, the morphological presentation of the person, that is the, the physical aspects, you know, the, uh, the, the coloring, the, uh, the, the, the density of pigmentation, the, the, the formation of uh, facial structure, uh, any physical attribute is often hereditary in, in families. Yes. So then there was the confusion at the Tower of Babel and they split up. Then they split up by way of families. 
Okay, so, what's, so that, what's that actually going to result in then as they split up at the Tower of Babel? And I want to come back and talk about the actual Tower of Babel, the purpose for it being built, yeah. you know, who was involved in all that kind of stuff. But as they, as they split up there at the Tower of Babel, when the languages are confused, what does that actually do as far as genetics go? Yeah, so you have a smaller gene pool. This is very important. Now, here is the thing. When you look at the early chapters of Genesis, we're looking at the people, the, the patriarchs, reaching ages of 900, 900 plus. Some of them just below, and one of them was taken up. Then you come to Noah and his three sons and their three wives, who then uh, reproduce. But this is a considerable smaller gene pool. And the genealogy of the ages, as they are recorded in the book of Genesis, the early chapters, indicate that there was a shortening of lifespan for a variety of reasons. But one of them is a weaker genome because you have a uh, greater likelihood for weaknesses and imperfections to be passed on from uh, generations within the family. And then you come to the Tower of Babel, where there is a, a separation based basically on the um, on the language issue. Uh, and by the way, uh, linguists all believe, those who are experts in, in languages, and we have some 3,000 of them going around the globe, they believe that we all originally come from one particular, that all the languages come from one basic language. So that's rather interesting as well. The, the fact that they split up in, as families, as I said, the genetic pool, weakening the actual genome and accentuating the actual specific appearances and conditions uh, would uh, guarantee uh, a distinction of races, which would only take a few generations. Is that the same, the same process that happens when um, various animal breeders today want to create a new breed? Correct. You, you know, it's an interesting thing when you talk to people who do, say, breeding of dogs or cats, and they can tell you that when they too finely bred, meaning too close uh, in, a, in a family structure, uh, there is a weakening of the genome. And But that's the way you have certain species within the kind. So basically what we've got in these first few chapters of Genesis is we have an explanation of what we see in the natural world. It begins Correct. by explaining, you know, where the world came from, why it is here. Then it explains why the world looks the way the world looks, obviously the flood. Yeah. And then it explains Correct. why the world is populated with so many different races, um, the Tower of Babel. Yeah. So it's, it's giving us three big explanations for three of the big observable things that we have in our world right now. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. It's okay. interesting. Go ahead. It's interesting when you look at the account, when you go to the... Uh, 11th chapter, it begins like that the whole earth had one language and one speech. So God had told them to disperse Lyle, and they didn't do it. They did the opposite. Uh, God had promised them that he would not flood the world again, destroy the world by water again. Well, they didn't believe it when Moses was teaching and preaching to his contemporaries, and then God makes a promise he won't do it again. Then they again don't believe God and they build 
they want to build a tower that reaches into heaven because the waters that flooded the earth did not reach into heaven. Um, so there is a rebellious nature. It, it really is, is rebellion that prompted them to build the cities. And uh, it says there in verse uh, 1 of chapter 11 that the whole earth had one language, one speech. It's very interesting when you look at it at the uh, from the Hebrew perspective, one lip and one kind of word. So there was not even, there was also an absence of differences in dialect as well. It was one language. They all understood each other perfectly. And then there is this little statement which often is wrongly translated. I just like to point this, that they, uh, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. That is, from the east is really an incorrect translation. It's a, a better translation would be as they journeyed east. Nikidem in the Hebrew would allow for that, most definitely. Uh, but there is another introduction of a principle that I'd like to give here. Kidem means east and it means ancient time. So it would be better translation that they journeyed from ancient times that they found a plain in the land of Shina because they came from the north Mount Ararat, and had to travel in a south-easterly direction to find the fertile plains of Mesopotamia, where we know them as the Sumerian uh, races, the first recorded civilization, uh, blossomed. And uh, what I'm trying to say is what we find there in the 11th chapter synchronizes beautiful with what we find in archaeology. And what it seems to me is that you've got... The you know when you talk about the first civilization blossoming there, where the Bible says that you know the descendants of Noah travelled to, it seems that these first descendants that have come from Noah have been an incredibly civilized people, and therefore oh, yes. and therefore the the less civilized, if we want to call it that, or the less developed tribes yeah. and nations and so forth, actually went backwards as they went yeah. out from here rather than the other way around. So we're starting with a very high level of civilization and then going to a lower level of development when we get further away from that. Yeah, that is correct. I mean, we got to give up on that evolutionary principle that man was very simple and and very basic and then just developed and and became more clever as he taught himself and learned, as etc. That's basically not true. If you look at the early... uh, uh, take, uh, for example, Ur of the Galdean, where Abram came from, uh, which is that area we're talking about. Uh, they had libraries, they had uh, official buildings, paved streets, they had uh, even sewage, they had baths, they had uh, uh, for sanitation purposes, uh, they had a lot. And they were, as you say, they were really, uh, it was a developed uh, civilization. Yeah. And, this is, and this is all taking place while the sons of Noah are still alive. Yeah, what happened is, it's interesting, we wondered why they left the area uh, where they had been stranded. So if you go back to the ark that settled there at the uh, at the mountains, we know it's Mount Ararat. Now there are basically two peaks, and somewhere in between the ark came to a rest. And the peaks are about sort of uh, almost 1,700, just over 1,200 feet in, in height. You can imagine in wintertime that gets very cold. And it may well be also 
that there would have been a development of an ensuing ice age, which we know occurred after the flood, as the, as the, uh, the, the, the uh, what shall I say, uh, the, the impurities in the air because of the volcanic activity all around the globe. There is the evidence of a, of an ice age. So early civilizations are all centered or in proximity of the equator, no matter where you go. Whether you go to China, America, so wherever you go, that's where the civilizations, early civilizations started. And the one in Mesopotamia and the, the oldest people we, we then have on record as a civilization are the Sumerians. Uh, so that all fits in beautifully with the biblical description. Absolutely. Baron, tell us about this, tell us about this uh, tower that they built. What was, the, what was the idea behind the tower? What was the purpose of the tower? And why was it so significant to the story? The tower itself, yeah. Look, the tower probably is, is more than just a a monument to their own egos, which is a very big, uh, a very big drive. You know, they wanted to make themselves a name, and that is still true today. When you go through the cities and you look at the buildings, um, but I I think the significant thing is that uh, there was a there was a perception that they. Uh, what shall we say, were closer to their gods. They had departed from the knowledge of the true god and the one they wanted to outsmart by building a, a, a very high temple, a very high tower. But it had also a religious application. There would have been apostasy, obviously, to the point of absolute paganism. And that was also a big drive. And the basis of it ultimately became... Uh, sun worship because of Nimrod and uh, the fact that they uh, allocated the personification of the of the sun to be representative of Nimrod. Um, Flavius Josephus uh, states that Nimrod was uh, mainly involved in the building of the Tower of Babel. Many people have seen the building of the Tower of Babel as a metaphor for a people uh, endeavouring to find salvation by works. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, to work out your salvation, I, I like to put it this way. Mankind still has this building Babel Tower mentality that trying to secure enough income, secure enough assets, uh, secure enough uh, uh, insurances, whatever it is, to, to fortify against all the possibilities of things going wrong. Uh, and actually that is true in trying to uh, secure your own um, existence and, and and make your own decisions and and everything done by your own works is really very well represented in the story in the account of the Tower of Babel. Yeah, that is very true. So the Tower of Babel comes to an end when uh, God confuses the language, but the other thing He does, of course, is strike it with lightning. Um, I guess yeah. they hadn't discovered lightning rods back then. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the the height of uh, the Josephus, the Jewish historian, estimates that the tower had a un, not completed as yet. Of course, they never did complete it. It's a bit like the Chinese wall uh, that they built in the days of uh, when Nebuchadnezzar was ruling uh, Babylon. Uh, it never was quite completed. Um, so that's rather interesting that this uh, enterprise undertaken by mankind was not completed either. Uh, and 
yes, they, 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 and, and I think he also affirms that there was lightning and there was a destruction. The Bible doesn't mention that per se. It just says they stopped building it. But because of its height, it, it might have been the recipient of lightnings. Yeah, that would be the most likely. Sure. Baron Neustraten, thank you so much for joining us here on The Breakfast Show. Uh, we always enjoy what you have to share with us and look forward to you joining us again next month. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Question of the... Yeah, what is... It is time for... Here we go. Question of the day. All right, Lyle, what is that question of the day? Okay, so somebody uh, called through with a comment earlier about slavery. And the question is, does the Bible condemn slavery? Because we were saying some pretty strong things about slavery and about our Christian duty to all men. And a lot of people will turn around. And what's interesting is if you look at the American Civil War as an example, um, and the slavery that took place in the United States was actually pretty small and insignificant compared to slavery that took place in other parts of the world and was taking place in other parts of the world at the same time, is just the most famous because of the very, very strong reaction to it and also the, I guess, the incongruity of having the United States Constitution and also having slavery at the same time. Uh, But when you look at that particular conflict, you had the Northerners who were preaching against slavery based on what the Bible said. You had the Southerners who were preaching in favor of slavery based on what the Bible said. And so some people have concluded that the Bible contradicts itself. Other people have concluded the Bible is pro-slavery because the Bible doesn't say anything against slavery. Okay, so let's look at a couple of facts in relationship to slavery. And the first fact is that there was no person who was a follower of the word of God who owned slaves. That's a very strong statement. A lot of people go, ah, I can show a lot of Bible verses on that. Okay, so let's look at the constitution of Israel and let's look at the biblical conditions under which the so-called slaves were kept. And I would say that the word slave is actually a very, very poor translation of the word that comes out of the 1600s, you know, it was first translated into English in, in uh, six, well, major, first major translation in 1611, when people just assumed this was the word slave and didn't actually recognize what was going on. Okay, so under the Constitution of Israel, this is what you'll find. Slaves owned and inherited land. Very different from what you would find, say, in the United States or North Africa or places like that where they had large slave populations. Slaves had the right to marry a person of their choosing at any time. This is the biblical model. This is what you'll find the Constitution of Israel gives. They had equal rights to any other person in a court of law. They had the requirement of physical protection from their employer. So if an employer did anything abusive to his slave, they had right of protection and the law would protect them. They had freedom of movement. You couldn't keep them on your property. You couldn't say you can't go here, you can't go there, you can't go the other place. Obviously, you know, like any employer, you say you do these jobs. By law, they had to receive one day off every week. Hmm. Um, they had freedom to keep the seven annual feasts and could not be required to work on those days. So not only did they have one day off per week, they had a series of public holidays. 
Sounds like an employee. It sounds very much like an employee. It was illegal that for their owner to slander or disparage their name. That's that's pretty full on right there. Um, they were to can be were con, were to be considered part of the extended family. They could not be compelled to work with rigor. The Bible says, in other words, hard labor. Any debilitating physical injury caused by the owner was caused for immediate emancipation. Their contract could not extend more than six years past the next jubilee. So these were actually people who were under contract, and at the end of their contract, a departing slave had to had to be given livestock, grain, and wine as a final payment and to set them up for independent living. And so what you had here was a safety net system where it was similar to work for the dole, but rather than work for the dole for the government, it was work for the dole for an individual. This was a fantastic system, and this was the biblical system that provided a safety net for people, and they were not slaves, they were low-paid contractors. 